This is episode 26 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with physical therapist Julie Weeb about integrating breathing and the pelvic floor into function and fitness. Thank you for letting us interview you today. Of course. Um, Thank you for inviting me. Can we start by having you introduce yourself? Yes. Uh, my name is Julie Weeb, and I am a women's sports medicine physical therapist. And what got you interested in those two areas? Um, I actually um, have always been a sports medicine therapist, um, but I added the women's part of it after I had my first child, which was about 15 years ago. And um, I started to, about 15 years ago is when the core became a thing. And um, I started to try to understand a little bit more about that system as it related to my own recovery from pregnancy and the understanding that the pelvic floor was a part of that core system was in the research even back then, and so it really made sense to me that I needed to understand a little bit more about pelvic health um, in order to treat or work with that entire system. And so that's where I started to try to blend those worlds because in my own pregnancy recovery, I wanted to be fit. All of my patients wanted to be fit, but the conventional wisdom at the time was, um, if you have any pelvic health considerations, you need to stop fitness. But none of my patients would listen. Uh, it really became my mission then to try to, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. So try to figure out how to really help them maintain and return to fitness after pregnancy. So that became, that's sort of how I blended that, those worlds, and then created my own title, which is Women's Sports Medicine PT. And so with regards to pregnancy and exercise, what are your thoughts on that? Because I know a lot of women still believe that they shouldn't exercise during pregnancy and after. Yeah, you know, um, unfortunately, and they're actually educated about that through their physicians sometimes and, and, and told not to exercise. Although I think that, that the realm is improving. We have, we have somewhere in the middle is where people should be, which is they should be exercising moderately, doing things they enjoy, listening to how their body is responding to those challenges, modify if they need to. But what we're seeing a lot of is either nothing, or like extremes in pregnancy. Um, and so somewhere in the middle is where I think people need to uh, be working. Um, and we have some education to do to try to help those extremes come to the middle in a way that's safe and effective and encourages movement throughout the pregnancy because it's so good for both mom and baby. Um, and um, I like to call it prehab, actually. Like it really prepares you for the delivery and it prepares you for your recovery. So the way we would prehab a knee or a hip for surgeries. So yeah, so I'm pro, <laughs> that's the bottom line. Uh, we just need to have better guidelines, I think, to help women know how to do that well. Mm -hmm. so. so a lot of what you teach is about the core system. Mm -hmm. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so I think that what we, 15 years ago when we started down this core road, um, we sort of got distracted by the TA, and um, we st in a lot of cases, folks are still focusing on the TA. Um, but what, what was clear in the literature even then, and what we have grown in our understanding of in 15 years' worth of research, is that it's a system. The, the TA interacts with the diaphragm, it interacts with the pelvic floor, um, the multifidus has a role in there too, that there's actually a system that works together to kind of help anchor our, our center. The cool thing about that for me, um, as a kind of a different type of pelvic health therapist, is that that means 
that the, the central stability system, that core team of muscles, is the same system that helps us with our continence. So that's where I can blend those worlds. And that's what I like to teach about, is that system that affects both of those things so we can help intersect and interact with the needs, a lot of different needs for our patients and understand them in a more complete way, including their pelvic health. And can you just explain briefly how that system of breathing and core works? Sure, yeah, the interaction is actually led by the diaphragm. And the diaphragm, on inhale, the diaphragm lowers and the pelvic floor and the tummy respond to the increase in pressure that's created because the diaphragm is coming down to suck air into our lungs. And so um, the tummy and the pelvic floor sort of give in response to that pressure and they're elastically loaded like a rubber band so that when the diaphragm lifts on exhalation, the, um, the pressure is relieved and they take that rubber bandy elastic loading and recoil back up into position. So it's an exchange of muscular force and pressure through both inhale and exhale. And that combination and that balance is where we get stability no matter what part of the respiratory cycle we're in. So during inhalation, it's balanced and we're safe. And then on exhalation, it's also balanced and we're safe. And we can use both ends of that to help us move around in our day. Um, so stability is actually a dynamic interaction versus some of the stiff strategies that we've been selling. I don't know if that's a good word. Uh, that we've sort of been selling for a lot of years. That if you just hold your tummy tight, you'll be fine. Or hold your pelvic floor. That we've communicated stiff equals strong. But really, that dynamic quality is more like function and fitness, we move. And so that system needs to move too to help mimic that. And why do you call that the piston science or piston breath? <laughs> well, the, it's the interaction between the diaphragm and the pelvic floor. They move like a piston. But one of my colleagues coined pistons, like she just thought it was kind of, she was being silly and called it piston science. But it's really more than just a breathing change or breathing mechanics change. It's an understanding of the building of that, rebuilding that system for our patients reestablishes a foundation that has was part of the original design. And when we rebuild that, when we reboot it, and we optimize things like breathing, the brain really likes that. The brain loves to breathe well. And so if we can optimize breathing, then that has carryover into a lot of systems in the body. And, um, and one of them is stability. One of them is continence. One of them is movement control, emotion, ANS downregulation, like all of those, those components, which play into so many things we treat as physiotherapists. So it's more than just what's changing with the breathing and that interaction. It's then how do we build brain strategies to make it all automatic again? and then implement that underneath function and fitness um, in order to uh, embed it into the brain so that they can move freely again without pain or pelvic health considerations. So with a lot of patients, you get the question of, well, why don't I breathe normally? How is my breathing different than it should be? Right. Because people That's... think it's ingrained in their brain and they should just be able to do it properly. Sure. And I so. agree. <laughs> Talking about breathing is often tricky because um, there is, you know, it's not something we'd normally think about. Um, but 
so, and again, a lot of this has to be understood in the context in which I learned it, which is with female athletes and with pregnant and postpartum women. And the changes that come with pregnancy are literally structurally, you can't, the diaphragm can't go through the same trajectory because the baby's in the way. So, the, so there are modifications that come to the breathing pattern because of that. And then um, the, the habits that are formed around that, the fitness that a lot of mommies do around that, the way that changes our ability to connect with stra the, the central stability strategy, it changes the way that they interact physically with the world. And so that is, uh, that's where they start to make changes in their breath pattern. Whether or not that was true before they got pregnant, it's hard to say. But, but understand that that's the context in which I, I've sort of learned that and seen that occur. And, um, and so that is a pretty easy sell for them to understand that it was altered during their pregnancy. And there's some pretty typical patterns that I see. Not everybody fits into it, but there are some typical patterns that I see postpartum. And, and the issue then becomes that when folks go back into their fitness, they pull all of those structural changes and all of those connection changes between the muscles and that imbalance that comes because of pregnancy, both in their breathing and their connection to the core musculature. They pull that into their fitness, and then their fitness just embeds those, those ha new habits and compensations rather than building them back towards a foundation that they had prior to pregnancy because they were symptom-free or they didn't have any pelvic health stuff before pregnancy. So, so and female athletes do tend to move into positions um, that have, again, I see a lot of postpartum female athletes, so it's like a blended thing, but female athletes, they have some specific breathing patterns that tend to come with their sport. It's reinforced by the positions they run in, they lift in. So it's sort of this intertwined thing between alignment that they use during their sport and how that affects breathing mechanics and how breathing mechanics affects their form. Um, so it's sort of a little bit intertwined. What are some common patterns that you see? I tend to see either chest breathers um, or belly breathers. And so chest breathers, they tend to be folks that have what I call, so I think of the rib cage as a bell ringing off of your shoulder girdle. And I think of it as bell rung up. So those are our like really high chested runners. Um, and then bell rung down is more of that sort of collapsed position um, that some folks find themselves in. And, um, and so those two positions tend to correlate, not all the time, but with either being an upper chest breather. So our bell rung uppers tend to breathe up into their chest and then the bell rung downers tend to have more of just a pure belly breath without a lot of motion in the rib cage. And so what we're hoping for is somewhere in between, um, somewhere where they've got a more balanced pattern between the use of intercostals, diaphragm, and the belly, that those, those guys are interacting in order to optimize the action of the diaphragm set off all these great systems, uh, and then interact with the pelvic floor. So those are the two main things. Both of those tend to use breath holding as their stability strategy to get through a fitness challenge, a life challenge, a movement challenge, and breath holding is not an optimal pattern for a low load like getting out of a chair. You shouldn't have to hold your breath to do that. So, so that's a mechanics or a, challenge, a breathing challenge that we want to overcome, especially for our pelvic health folks. I feel like a lot of the times you hear that with chest breathers, they need to breathe through their belly more. And some mm -hmm. things like yoga, they focus more on a belly breath. Right. And a lot of people think that belly breathing is good. So is that a good strategy to use? So that's a great question. We, we don't have a lot of good common ter terminology because diaphragmatic breathing is what a lot of people refer to when they talk about the breath that I'm describing. But when I looked at my textbook, 
from, from PT school, diaphragmatic breathing, the woman was like, it was a drawing, and her rib cage was like this, and her belly, every breath was like totally pregnant belly. That's not what I'm suggesting. Um, and so belly breathing, as opposed to chest breathing, I don't think that that's what we're gunning for either. What I really would like to see for my patients is the capacity to use both of those realms because what we're ultimately doing is balancing the pressure. And neither of those strategies completely balance the pressure out for um, for those patients. We're trying to create a balance between those two things. And it, one of the biggest things, the biggest challenges I see for a lot of my postpartum athletes is they can't really move their rib cage, and all they know how to do is move air because they're actively breathing in and out. And that's not what I'm suggesting either. So belly breathing to me, if it's an active inhalation, exhalation, that's not what I'm looking for, but that's a fitness breath. That's what they think they're supposed to be doing. And, um, and, it's, and then they use it in their daily life, and that's, it just doesn't fit the task. Like we need to be able to reestablish some of those normalized patterns to, to reestablish a better um, coordinated action between breath and muscular work. When do you assess people's breathing patterns? I mean, I know you're kind of working in pretty niche area right now, yeah. but would you suggest that all physios look at people's breathing pattern, whether there's any type of pelvic pain, low back pain, anything like that, even if it's you know to do with the shoulder or foot? Absolutely. I, I would, and but understand that the the my like if we have to my piston science idea or whatever is we have to restart at the center, and they need and and understanding like if we're going to talk about low back pain, the diaphragm actually has insertions and origins on the lumbar spine, so it's a total ally for anybody that has lumbar symptoms. But we also um, understand if you're treating pain. And we know that we often prescribe breathing, deep breathing for our, you know, our chronic pain patients or our pelvic pain patients. And if their deep breath looks like this, you know, that's a stress breath. And that's not going to calm down the ANS. It's not going to create any new inputs to the brain. It's, it's really one of what I have found, again, because it intersects with so many systems in the body, I can affect so many different things through breathing more than if I just worked your shoulder. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and the diaphragm actually turns on before the shoulder every time you move the shoulder. And so it has a, uh, it has a role to play. And the rib cage is where the shoulder blades sit, which is where the shoulder, you know what I mean? Like we can't, we, we've sort of disconnected all of these parts. And to me, the diaphragm reconnects all of these parts. And that's really how we function. So, so I absolutely think that it has a role to play because it connects with the stability system. And most PTs have some kind of core stability goal that they wrote right for their patients. And the diaphragm intersects with that. So I absolutely do. And then if you're going to intersect then with a musculoskeletal issue and pelvic health, in the same patient, because it's existing in the same patient, then diaphragm is a great way to intersect with both of those things. So yeah, I'm a huge advocate for that. And it's not something we're taught to do, at least in the States, um, in PT school. It's not something we're all really comfortable with, um, and especially not how to evaluate a rib cage, or we need some, we need to start thinking that way, because it's a component we've sort of skipped over, <clears throat> just like the pelvis and the pelvic floor, right? We've sort of skipped over that piece, so. In your assessments, how, how do you assess breathing? Do you tell someone that you're looking at their breathing or do you just look at it without them knowing? I get a little bit of a snapshot when I watch them move out of a chair. But again, I do have a lot of 
patients that have either read my blog or seen videos, and so they sort of expect to have breathing be a part of our conversation. So I usually ask them to take a big breath. I also ask them to just take a quiet breath, and I often and I tell them try not to impress me. I just want to see what you're doing. So and I don't tell them what a good breath looks like because there really isn't a good breath. It's a balanced breath that works for their system. Anyway, so yeah, so I, I, I do get a little bit of a snapshot, but I do act, actually ask them to show me what their breath looks like. And then we play with how it changes if we change their position or we change a few things so that they can feel different kinds of breaths and start to find the, the value of where that breath fits into their presentation. So, so you said changing their position when they're breathing. So do you think that someone's posture has a big effect on breathing? I do. And and really, the reason that I intersect with alignment for my patients is that it creates availability for the components of this system. And so what I like to do is have, when I teach, is you know play with it. Everybody slouch, be bell rung down, and take a breath and see what happens to your breathing. And then raise your chest up and go bell rung up and see what happens to your breathing. So when you change your rib cage position, you're changing which muscles are dominating that breath and you're gonna see a change in your pattern. And so that, for me, so finding the balance where you access and create that balance for them, you know, that's what I'm gunning for. I'm not looking for some perfect position for them. What I'm looking for is a position where they feel this really an ease of breath that connects them to the rest of that system. And alignment absolutely helps them do that. It's how we begin in order to help them find that again. And then we apply it in and out of those positions over time. So I do think it's important initially for sure to help find the pieces of that puzzle. That was going to be my next question is how do you then once you find that position that they have the best control in, how do you get them back to sports or activities that they want to do where they're changing that position all That's the time? That's a great question. What I, well, and again, what, what I'm trying to do is build brain strategies. I'm trying to tap into what we understand about some of those neuromuscular processes, the design, which is that that system turns on to sort of anchor things beforehand. Um, And so I'm trying to mimic that design as best I can. And that ultimately my goal is, like I said, the brain loves to breathe well. And when it likes the, the position, optimizes the breath, and then it reconnects these pieces, and they feel better, and they're calm when they leave. The brain gets that. The brain's like, I'd like to recreate that, please. And so it, it ultimately starts to create a new baseline for them in terms of alignment. I don't want them focusing on way, how they're standing. My goal is is that they, they sort of recreate those connections, and then that brain strategy we put underneath exercise that they like, yoga, Pilates, CrossFit, running, whatever it is. And then the the fitness reinforces the strategy. And so then we just start building from there exercises that within what they like to do that mimic what I'm trying to get out of their body and build them back towards what they enjoy. And then that sort of just keeps, it just reinforces for them the strategies I'm trying to build. And it reinforces that they can still move happily and safely and still have fun with their body. In your experience, how long does it take people to understand that strategy and begin to use it without consciously having to think about it? Um, Well, from a teaching standpoint, I find it takes two sessions. Like it takes, the first time it's a little bit of like a, what? Like it's really, because you never thought about breathing before. You cut, especially a lot of my athletes, they've come into it with lots of years of instruction in a different 
methodology. Um, and they've been reinforcing it too, right? And so, and they've also been on the internet and been fear-mongered like crazy about all the choices they made during their pregnancy and, you know, they feel guilt, like it's just, it's madness out there. Um, <clears throat> and so that first session is a little bit of a brain cramp. So we, and then when they come back the second time, it's really an opportunity to start to really embed it and play with it. And then the minute we start putting it more into their fitness, then that's when things start to tumble in terms of their ability to reinforce it regularly because they're going to do their fitness program over our boring rehab exercises, like if we're really honest. And so it depends on the patient. I would love to have like, oh, it only takes four times, you know, but it depends on the patient and their needs and the complexity, of course, but it's neuromuscular, right? Like that's what we're gunning for. So the brain works so much faster than any muscle strengthening can do. So usually it just takes a few weeks to start to see improvement. And I anticipate because I'm working with the brain, I'm not trying to just strengthen a muscle. I anticipate seeing improvements every time I see my patient. And I usually see patients every couple of weeks. And then, <clears throat> and then we spread that out to monthly because they've got the strategies and I teach them how to apply that within their fitness and they can do whatever they want. Like, you know what to look for. I'm going to educate you so you know how to modify and monitor for your symptoms. Here are the things you need to do. And then they can kind of take it from there. I mean, I do have a very athletic population, so they often can do that. Not everybody can. But yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't take as long because it's neuromuscular. At the beginning of treatment, when you're just teaching people these new patterns, mm -hmm. how often do you get them to do them to try and reinforce that? Um, usually it's uh, about five reps, something like that, because it's I'm not trying to build strength. I'm trying to drill in a strategy, but I'm always talking to them about using it under their function. So every time they pick up their kid, it's an opportunity to practice squat. Like, so let's have really good squat form, pick them up, and then use our, our brain strategies, our breath strategies. Let's use those un, as we pick up the baby. And then we'll think about breathing while we're walking with the baby across the room because that's not going to be the same kind of strategy. Um, and then so their function is always reinforcing it for me versus now I want you to lay down and do 20 minutes of exercise. I might give them three or four exercises and then have them just do a few reps. But if they can just work on pieces of the puzzle in their day, in their function, that just keeps reinforcing the brain strategy of the whole thing. And then if they do get an opportunity to do fitness, it just keeps reinforcing it. Because those are the things they're gonna always do. Our little rehab packets, they're not as excited about, unfortunately. So um, so that's what I found. I found better carryover when I do it that way, but the exercises themselves, it's usually five to eight. Sometimes I say 10. So I mean, we talked a little bit about sports and sports that use different breathing patterns that may not be the best things like dance and gymnastics mm -hmm. so for an athlete going back to those sports how do you deal with that yeah so again i may not have hit that as well so with athletes and this is before i knew any of this stuff if you you cannot prepare an athlete for everything that's going to happen on the court or the field. Like, you just can't. You cannot anticipate everything. So your off-court training needs to just build patterns, like, and repeat good, efficient patterns. And so, and what you're doing there is ultimately is preparing it to occur reflexively. Like, that's what they have to do on the court. So if I know that breath holding is going to be a part of their strategies that they have to use, then I'd better train them for breath holding off the court. Right, So if they have to grapple for a ball, they're not going to be in a good alignment and they're not going to be like 
carefully breathing in and out. That's not going to happen. So I need to prepare them for breath holding. And so that then becomes one of the strategies that we work on um, so that they know how to apply that. And then when they get a chance to practice it, we've prepared them as best we can for that moment because I prepared their brain. And that's the best that I can do. And so, so it goes well beyond like you have to stand like this. Like the goal is let's do what we would do in sports medicine for any athlete. We prepare them as best we can for the kinds of variety that they're going to see out there. And that's why I basically just have them bring in, like, show me three pieces of your fitness program that you currently can't do and you want to be doing, and let's try them, see how we can modify them, and we put these strategies underneath that. And that gives them back that those pieces that they've been missing, and then it starts to keep building their strategies, their capacities grow inside that, both mobility and strength, and then they're getting more and more prepared to being back on the court. Does that make sense? Yep. So it's just, it's literally sports medicine applied to breathing and sports medicine applied to pelvic health. It's just what we would normally do with any athlete. We just, it's just thinking a little more broadly about what that would look like. Now, you mentioned breath holding and teaching breath holding, if that's something they have to use. Right. Are there good and bad ways of breath holding? So it depends on what it is that you're, what your, your end game is. A hundred percent, I would say at this point, of my patients, well, that's not totally true. I do see friends who don't have pelvic health considerations, but my client base generally speaking, do have pelvic health considerations. So pressure management is a part of pelvic health. Um, so prolapse, incontinence, um, diastasis, all of those have a pressure management component. And so yes, if you are breath holding without preparing the system for that, then it can overwhelm the system and patients will have symptoms. The way that I train it, we have to contextualize it in a um, continuum of ideas where we start where we get in the middle, when they're ready to start breath holding again. And one of the strategies that I use is um, blow before you go. And that is this idea that that inhalation, the pelvic floor lowers, exhalation, the pelvic floor rises. That's a reflexive response from the pelvic floor. So if we exhale, we should see a re recoiling response from the pelvic floor. And it does it in a preparatory way for movements. And so when our patients, when I have patients start their exhale before they begin a movement, I'm actually trying to mimic that design. And again, that to me is building that automaticity and those brain strategies. Um, so it's different than exhale with exertion, which is not new, like we've taught that for a long time. To me, that's a strength idea with using exhalation. What I'm suggesting is a neuromuscular strategy that does, mimics that preparatory response that this system has. And so I've trained my patient in that idea through their progression towards breath holding activity. So if it is a CrossFitter, um, for example, I'll train them to use breath mechanic strategies, either exhalation, blow before you go, or I do transition them eventually to train inhale and exhale through movements. But then we get up into towards 80% of their max, that's when I usually transition them into breath holding. So I teach them, I've already taught them this blow before you go idea. And so I actually return them to that and we do blow before you go and just do a quick little hold 
and then we hold our breath on top of it. And um, so it's that little hold of the pelvic floor and then breath hold on top of it. So to me, that's, I don't like the terminology of good versus bad breath holding, but that at least is something that prepares the system to take on all that pressure and I will monitor that. So I'll have them do that and show me that their pelvic floor doesn't collapse under that pressure. Does that make sense? And then we start to transition into higher loads and more impact or volume and that, that they can still manage all that and be symptom free. So, so that is sort of a continuum of understanding there. But yeah, you need to be ready for it for a lot of these athletes. And it doesn't take a long time. That sounded like it takes a long time, but you can, that's because the brain goes fast. So. With sport-specific movements, how do you know how someone is using their pelvic floor? Because it's not really an area you can see. Um, well, I actually palpate. The, I do, my palpation is external. So I am monitoring their movements, what's happening with the pelvic floor, what I'd like to see, what should be happening. And then my goal is always that they can feel in their, with their brain what's happening. They can perceive it. And so then they'll know what's happening with their pelvic floor. Some of my patients, again, my, my, my patient load is primarily pregnant and postpartum. Some women do have sensory loss. They can't tell necessarily what's going on there. Um, but they all, I, I have yet to have a patient who can't feel that they're breathing, right? So if, if I've done my work and they've done their work and we've connected those pieces and it's happening automatically, then it should show up, right? So if we've done that well we, and we believe in the system, you have to believe, <laughs> believe with me, then it should show up. So even if they can't feel what's happening, I will be their feedback for them. And, um, and then I often just instruct them to worry about their breathing. Like think about what's happening, take your you know, inhale, exhale, make sure you're breathing. Like if you're doing double unders, just be sure you're breathing because I can't monitor something that fast. I can't have my finger in there while they're double undering. Like it's just not possible, right? So, um, and some can feel their pelvic floor doing stuff, some can't, but if they're then not having symptoms, I think their pelvic floor is telling me I'm good. You know what I mean? So symptoms, just like anything, we can't see pain either. Do you know what I mean? So really, it's the symptoms then give us that, that confirmation that something's happening that should be happening. So a little bit of palpation, a little bit of observation. So, yeah. And going back to the breath holding again. Yes. So you're saying when you teach breath holding, like if someone was you know doing a squat and holding their breath through that, yeah. you would get them to just do a small exhale first, just engage the pelvic floor and then hold after that. Yeah. Does that change at all if someone's wearing a weightlifting belt? Um, so that's a fantastic question and something that needs to be discussed. So weight, the weight belt basically exaggerates the intra-abdominal pressure, and they also push their bellies out against it as a leverage a little bit. So I'm going to answer this, and it's going to sound super complicated, but there's a couple ways to think about that. If you need a belt to get your PR, then I would kind of argue that that really might not be a PR right? Because you need an external device to help you create it. So that's one thing to think about. But if you have no other strategies than breath holding and pushing and doing pressure belly, like pushing your belt, belly out, then, then that's your only way of achieving it. If we've created all these other strategies and giving your body back the diaphragm, pelvic floor, and I've also probably modified form under that, because a lot of ladies leak with belts and then they take their belt off and they don't leak. Like, so it's pretty pretty straightforward. But if I've given you all these strategies and what's happened for my, my, a lot of my patients is I'm like, okay, let's get you up to 80% because again, that's where I sort of find that people need to go into the breath holding. Let's get you there. And then next time when you come back, we're going to talk about breath holding for when you hit PRs again. And they come back 
and they and they're like, yeah. So and I'm like, how'd it go? Good. I got up to like 90, 95, no weight belt, blah blah. And I'm like, okay, well, did you hold your breath? No. And I'm like, okay, well, wait, what? I don't. That that used to be your PR. But what we've done is we've given their body back some of these muscles to participate. So I think that their PRs have actually grown. Does that make sense? So now 90, their old 95% is their new 80, yeah? So, so I, I think that we've sort of given people this strategy of weight belts without, because we don't have, we haven't had other strategies. My, I may not be answering your question well. I understand well. that. Okay, so, I'm, so if that has to be part of it, because some of these people are pushing some super heavy loads, then we need to train them for that and we need to prepare them for that. Um, but I would have already trained them toward breath holding way up into those higher strategies already. And then I would consider talking to them about that. But a lot of my patients don't have to use weight belts anymore, right? So it's because they can push into these new ranges because they have more muscle to help them pull off these big loads. And they usually have better form and better form allows you to get under the load better. So I don't know if I answered that well, but it is a tricky question because, um, it's a part of that culture, and it's it's one it's a piece of the puzzle that, generally speaking, makes things harder for the pelvic health component of that sport. So for non-pelvic health physios, if they are looking at this whole breathing and core system, yes. when would you recommend that they refer to a pelvic floor physio? Um, so like I said, I usually can see results quickly because if I'm really nailing it and the brain is embedding what I'm giving it information about and you're seeing this carryover, they should be getting results, okay? And that's true for anything. I mean, if you're just treating pain, um, you should see results. And if that's not happening and you're not seeing results in their musculoskeletal problem and their pelvic health problem because you've asked, now you care, and you want to incorporate that into your interviewing and you want to try to address it as a part of their musculoskeletal problem, like low back makes so, hips, low back, makes so much sense that pelvic health would have a role to play there. And um, if that's your like gateway, if you're not seeing results, you should contact a pelvic health therapist. I mean, and you and, and let the patient know that. I need feedback from you. If you're leaking through my rehab program, you I absolutely, if, we, if what I'm suggesting to you, of what I know about this piece of the puzzle isn't helping, we have got to get you to someone. It's important. Like, let me let me emphasize how important it is to you as my patient. It's important that we deal with this. And I've, my skill set isn't helping you. There are women and men therapists that can really help you deal with that. And we can work together. Um, so yeah, is it results. And it should happen quickly. Like, if within a month you're not seeing a change in their pelvic health, get them out. Go, go make sure. And you may be the first person that's ever asked them. They don't know that it's important. Like that's why our musculoskeletal therapists need to understand this because patients know to come back for pain. They don't know to go in for pelvic health. So they'll come for their hip or their low back. And if we don't know the relationship between their pelvic health and what we're seeing musculoskeletally, they're going to slip through the cracks. And guess what? Those are the patients that are going to keep coming back because they're not staying better. They're, you know, or they don't get better as quickly as you expect. There's something else going on because you're not looking at the whole picture. So you should be referring out. I refer out all the time. So um, patients don't always want to go <laughs> but because um, they don't understand the process. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's important that we collaborate on that because musculoskeletal therapists will only have this piece of the puzzle. Um, but the, the coordinated care would be amazing. How do you test core strength? 
I don't. <laughs> uh, I do test the strength of some of these muscular relationships, but I'm not really grading them for strength. I'm grading them for how well they coordinate their action. That's about it. That's the only thing I really test is some of these like more superficial relationships because I think that we, we as a profession have kind of hung our hat on like if we can get everybody to five out of five, they'll be better, right? Five out of five strength, they'll be better and they'll be, get back to their activity, sport, whatever, function. But we know that's not true. We know tons of patients that get to really strength, a lot of strength, but their function doesn't change. And that's because we've never taught them to coordinate it and control it, and that's neuromuscular. So I really am more looking at movement efficiency and um, control for their, their movements and their sport-specific movements than I am looking at strength. Don't tell my professors at PT school. <laughs> what are the basic movements that you would look at kind of first session with someone? The basic movements, um, I look at uh, single leg stance, single leg squat, squat, and if their goals include impact, I don't always go there right out of the gate depending on what their diagnosis is, but I will look at like a jump squat and hopping because impact is a tricky one for a lot of people to control. Those are my basic movements that I look at. Depending on why they're coming in, I might look at rotation too. I want to know if they have the capacity to rotate. A lot of people don't rotate well. Lots of athletes don't rotate well. With single leg squat, there's always a lot of talk about knee positioning and knee valgus and how it's bad or it doesn't matter. What are your thoughts on that? Um, to me, and again, my patient population are always combos of musculoskeletal, sports medicine, and pelvic health. Um, when I am watching a runner who is leaking while she's running, and when she shows me a single leg squat and her knee dives to the center, that to me is a proximal hip control issue. The pelvic floor is a part of proximal hip control, and that is, to me, it's a valuable piece of information because that tells me if she can't control it with her foot flat on the ground, what's happening when she's running? that's going to be an even greater loss of control, likely. Combine that with leaking while she's running. To me, those are connected presentations. And, and I say that because as I clean up that it core, I don't know I like that word, that central stability, that coordination, their single leg squat changes within two weeks. Like I already see an improvement there. So then I know that that system was a part of why they couldn't control their hip and then I get carryover into less leaking when they run. Like so, and that's pretty, I see that pretty consistently, um, and it happens pretty quickly that they change their, their single leg squat. So I think it's important. So it's not just strengthen your adductor so it improves oh, no. control. Yeah, and I don't system. actually, and actually I don't even send home, and again, yeah, so I don't do strength. Like I really don't. I do, I, I give out exercises that force them to use their adductor, but it's always in conjunction with their glutes or their pelvic floor, or like it's always the relationships that the adductor has to support its action. Yeah, no, I, would, I wouldn't pin it on any one muscle. I always, and I don't send them home with single leg squats. It's, that's really rare unless they actually really enjoy them. But I tell my runners, this is running. Like single leg squat is running over and over. I mean, it's like, you, it's all you do. And I don't actually train single leg squats that they, I don't test and retest by using it as my exercise. I actually just have them run with these new strategies in place. And then we see the carryover. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's kind of fun, actually. 
it's more fun than giving out adductor exercises. <laughs> Is there any research in this area? Like I know there's a lot on pelvic floor now, but is there anything that incorporates that whole system? That It's really hard because it's hard to test systems in research. You have to eliminate like really narrow variables. So we have, so a lot of what I've done related to this is extrapolate the sports medicine research. So for example, um, well, you're asking about the system. Sorry, I was going to go off into an alignment thing. Um, you can do that too. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, well, but like there's a there's a study that was done looking at um, the position self-selected positioning for running, and so folks that tended toward like a more high-chested position um, had less glute and um, hip extension moments. I'm trying to remember, there was some biomechanical language in there. Like I don't want to misquote it. And then as they moved into more and more leaning into the run, they had more glute activation and hip extensor power. And, and so, th so that is something that, you know, it, from a, so that had nothing to do with pelvic health. But what I see with my female runners is they tend to run with very high chests, very um, bouncy cadence, and they don't have glutes. So when I t lean them in, I'm reducing ground reaction forces, I'm encouraging more glute activation to help absorb some of that impact, and we do have some preliminary research that has shown us there's relationships between the glutes and the pelvic floor. And so we get carryover that way too, and we're in a position where the diaphragm and pelvic floor can work together better. I mean, there's all these things happening, but it's all extrapolated from you know, a running study that has nothing to do with pelvic health. Um, and so, um, but we do have some MRI studies that have showed these relationships between the diaphragm, abs, and pelvic floor. We have um, uh, some great studies that have shown the pelvic floor actually reacting to tasks, but the women still leaked. And um, they were able to also watch other components of that system, like the abs, actually overactivate as well. And basically, they were overwhelming the pelvic floor. So we definitely have components of all of this out there in the research. Um, and starting to look at that interaction, we've looked a lot at TA pelvic floor. We've looked at diaphragm pelvic floor. Um, yeah, so yes, there is research. But from the, for the application into sport and fitness, we need more. We absolutely because it's really hard to measure the pelvic floor in a dynamic activity. Um, hoping that that will change, that we can start to measure that. We need to understand how the pelvic floor behaves in a dynamic activity, and we don't really have a lot of great information about that yet. Um, so, yeah, so there's some good stuff, there's some extrapolated stuff, and we need more. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, they can go to my website. I'm at julieweebpt.com. I have um, I really a pretty hardy blog um, and uh, videos that are there that you can look at. And I really recommend just typing into the search window, diastasis, pelvic floor, like anything you're interested in, um, and start to do kind of a search through that. And then I have courses that are both live and online uh, that really explore these topics and help to blend those worlds and look at female athletes um, a little bit differently and try to understand them from a broader perspective. So juliewpt.com. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.